In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Brilliant. Do keep that passage open. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That was a part of a, a, just one sentence of an interview with Stephen Fry uh, on Irish TV uh, this week. It's being aired, I believe, tonight on British TV. It was startling. And sadly for very many, it was quite affirming. So I want us not to be naive. As Christians, we have to realise that hostility and anger towards God, the God of the Bible, will likely increase. So what do we do? We can try and speak rationally, logically, but often men such as Stephen Fry, eloquent and very able, they don't want to listen to logic and reason. They simply want to dismiss with emotionally charged accusation that is brilliantly, and we have to admit, very eloquently presented, and yet not very well thought through. For example, can you really call God mean-minded and capricious if he has done everything to end the pain that we know in this world, knowing that that has been achieved through the giving, the loving sacrifice of his only son, Jesus Christ, to take on himself all the pain and the justice that I deserve for my rebellion against God and to give us a complete solution to all the pain that we know in this world today. Mean-minded and capricious. See, the problem we face is that the loving message of uh, Jesus' self-sacrifice is a bitter pill that is very difficult to swallow for many in a very self-sufficient, proud and individualistic world. For some, it's just too much. Now, Stephen Fry's outburst isn't anything to do with the pain and the suffering in the world, though. If you listen to it, you kind of, you listen to the whole interview and you see that he would love to think that his anger towards God is focused in that way. But if you listen carefully, he's just like every single one of us. 
He just doesn't want to be told what to do. He wants to live, to think and to feel as he wants, when he wants. And you kind of got to ask, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, who are we as Christians or God in the Bible to say, well, that anyone has to do what they're told when they're told it? Even if God has lovingly instructed his world how to live their lives, many will just say, how arrogant. So shouldn't we as a church, you know, as Christ yourselves, shouldn't we consider a bit of a rebrand? We'll get the management, the management consultants in. There's enough of you out there, so you can give us some help. You know, and, and think, through how, think through how to become a little bit more savvy, if you like, more applicable, more likeable in the culture and the world around us. And in some ways, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. We all need help. Even management consultants need help occasionally, uh, you know, to work out how we can best use the resources that we have to make the message known. But the down through the ages, through the last few centuries, especially we've seen the church and, and many, many churches moulding themselves to the culture around them, trying to find that kind of silver bullet that will keep people in the church or even grow a church. And many, many, many churches have thought, well, the way to do that must be to make what we say more palatable. And those kind of churches veer in two different directions. They, either towards, they tend towards moralism, teaching, well, hey, you guys, you're so nice and kind and gentle. Look at you, you work for the home office. Now, and off you, go. you, if you just do a few kind things, you'll be all right with God in the end. But the problem is with moralism is that people worry, have they ever done enough? That is, there's no assurance there at all. The other way churches go is, is, is they veer towards liberalism. That is, they ignore God's loving instruction in his word, the Bible, and in all its fullness. And what they do is they take a kind of pick-and-mix attitude to whatever the Bible says. And what results is absolutely catastrophic. Because Jesus becomes a model rather than a saviour. God the Father becomes a kind of a benevolent grandfather rather than a father who's willing to refine and discipline his children that he loves so much. God becomes one liberal church minister, actually just in the local area, once described his belief in this way to me. I couldn't believe it. He said, we treat God as a kind of a trinket religion. You know how kind of trinket you put on your mantelpiece. We take him down, we look at him every now and then, and then we put him back on the mantelpiece, usually behind a very large picture of ourselves. God, in those kind of ways of thinking, can't be the all-pervasive Lord of our lives who we joyfully submit to. He becomes a hobby, not a loving king. But liberalism is very attractive because it legitimises. It puts God exactly where we want him. That is below us, available to us whenever we like, but at our mercy. And as a church, should we do that? It's very attractive in some ways. It may even fill, the, we haven't got many spare chairs, but it may even like fill this place for a while. And sadly, many people have thought that is the answer. But interestingly, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, spoke out against this way of thinking this week. I don't know if you spotted that in the news. I was really encouraged by this. He commented on the demise of the church in this country 
warning church ministers about filling their sermons with, as he described it, moral claptrap about being nicer to everyone. It's moralism and it's liberalism. But the problem is we feel the pressure. The message of the Bible is plain at times, isn't it? It's hard to hear. It confronts our hearts, our lives, our dreams, our motives. It is all pervasive. Being nice is kind of surface stuff, isn't it? The Bible goes deep. And sometimes that can hurt. Our passage today, if on a spectrum of passages over here that challenge and over here that comfort, I'll give you a little bit of a warning. It's over there somewhere. The great J.C. Ryle, the first bishop of Liverpool, in his expository thoughts on the Gospel of Matthew, which if you want a little bit of a, a, a help for your kind of daily devotions, 79 pence on Amazon Kindle right now buys you J.C. Ryle's expositional thoughts on Matthew. Unbelievable. He divides this passage into five sections. Here are his points. I think they're very helpful. He puts it this way. John the Baptist spoke plainly about sin. Second point, John the Baptist spoke plainly about Jesus. Third point, John the Baptist spoke plainly about the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist spoke plainly about the unrepentant. And fifthly, John the Baptist spoke plainly about those who do repent. The point being is, this is plain. This is plain speaking. This isn't liberal claptrap. This isn't moralism and being nice. John the Baptist is like one of those special forces soldiers. You know, there's very few niceties to them, is it? It's just, get the job done. Or as Raoul put it, he spoke plainly. As a church and the elders here at the church, the leaders... We are committed to do everything that we can to make this church, this gathering of God's people, yes, a joyful gathering, absolutely, warm and welcoming and loving and all of those things that are right and appropriate. We're committed to making the church known and Christ's gospel that unites us in this church known to the area around us and to our friends. We want to use every means possible to do that. We all will make mistakes. But all together, and look around because we are in this together, we ought to be committed to speaking plainly about the gospel. And the gospel, that it calls us to repent. And that is, if you like, the core of what we're looking at tonight. Look at it in verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent, repent. It's good to think of what repentance is, and the passage itself, I think, helps us understand what repentance is. Have a look down at verse 6, if you can, of the passage in front of you. You'll see, you'll get the idea of what repentance is there. It says, confessing their sins, they were baptised. In response to the call to repentance, they confessed their sins. And the people's confession, I think, is a recognition that repentance is not, oh, I feel sorry about what I've done. It, or It's not just regret. It is regret, but it goes a whole lot further than that. 
They've been turning away from God, being liberal with his good, loving instructions for their lives in his word, the Bible. And they confessed their wrong direction. They turned away from God. And their following baptism, if you see in verse 6, comes as a symbol, if you like, of the complete change in their lives. The scholar Don Carson, I found his commentary on this particular uh, book uh, incredibly helpful. Let me just read this, just one paragraph if I can, of how he describes repentance. Really helpful this. What is meant is not merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief. This is what he says about repentance. Still less doing penance. But it's a radical transformation of the entire person. A fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief. Which results in fruit in keeping with repentance. Just thinking back to last week, if you want, and what we were looking at in Matthew chapter 6, with regard to treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. Repentance, I guess, and I know I've heard from you, was in many of our hearts and how we strive after one rather than the other. We long to honour God with the money that he's given us and the possessions that we have. We know we struggle, but there ought to be, in a sense, if there's true repentance, there ought to be a sense of grief in us as we hoard treasures on this earth. But then also fruit of the change, if in keeping with that mind and life that has been transformed in true repentance. It seems as we go further into the passage, the Pharisees, look at verse 7 for example, they come with no intention of repentance. Because genuine repentance is, a, is one scholar used a kind of military language, it's a, it's a real about turn, it's a complete transformation. And the Pharisees aren't showing that at all, as we'll see in a moment. And if we're honest, repentance doesn't come naturally. None of us are saying, oh yeah, I've got that, totally, I'm right down with that. No, none of us. Repentance requires an acknowledgement that we need to transform. And few of us like to acknowledge that. It requires us to completely come about. And that requires humility, because you're saying you need to change. You're saying that you need help, that you're not king, but rather you're inclining your life, your heart, your mind to the great king. I guess the message of this church is simple. We teach and humbly make known that we all need to turn. Because morally and spiritually we are all needy before a powerful, just and loving God. Of course we must be as culturally savvy as we possibly can be in the way that we make that message known. There's no point in us needlessly offending anyone, no. But to know God in his loving, good, eternal kingdom, we call heaven, requires repentance a complete about turn, a transformation of the whole of us. And in love, we must make that known. And we must uh, expect rejection as we do so. There will be people, maybe even you here today, who will wish as you leave this building, mock me for what I've said. Therefore, practice what you will say. Some of us will stammer over our words and find it very difficult to ever make this known. 
I guess it's helpful to make this kind of information known within good relationships, ones that you've invested in, one that you shared your lives with someone. And that's hard in London today. Pray for people, love them. The point is, never compromise on that message. John the Baptist didn't, and nor should we. But why should we do this? Well, of course, we've got this mission in a couple of weeks' time, a few events. Perhaps we may even think, oh, that feels a bit laborious. Maybe we've even looked around and thought, well, I know those guys, they're keeny beanies, so they can do all the work. I'll just sit back and, oh, I don't worry about my friends. Maybe we just think, we make that kind of pragmatic decision in our heads. Hey, uh, my friendships are kind of on the edge there and it might be detrimental to my relationship with the people on my road if I invite them to anything. They might not invite me to their summer barbecue if I invite them to this event or this event. Or you might just be saying, oh, it's too much hassle. Well, there are four good reasons why we should repent and why we should teach and encourage those we love to repent. And they're written on your sheets. We're going to go through them very quickly now. Firstly, because God's kingdom is near. Secondly, because God's word can be trusted. Thirdly, because God understands us. And fourthly, because God has provided for us. Let's flick through those very quickly. Firstly then, because God's kingdom is near. You see that at the end of verse 2. Just cast your eyes down. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. See, John the Baptist warned his listeners to repent. First and foremost, because God's kingdom, which... Paul actually describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as a power. He says that power is near, that kingdom is near. Of course, it's near in time because the kingdom was to be established or, as you might say, inaugurated as Christ comes in his life and his death and his resurrection. But it's also near in space too. That is... The kingdom of heaven is close by, as John the Baptist is proclaiming this, because Jesus was present on earth to establish or inaugurate that kingdom. Now, we are neither there in time nor space, so why should this bother us at all? Why don't we just kind of cross this out? Well, Jesus has established his kingdom and will one day return to bring it in in all its fullness. So it's near today for us as it was for them, arguably even more. As many of us know, the Spirit of God in our hearts. It's near in time because we do not know the hour in which he will return. But it's also near because it's in our hearts. But also as Christians gather, God promises to be amongst us by his Spirit, through his word. The kingdom of power of God is near. No less now than it was then. Therefore, repent. Second good reason, let's go to point two there. Second good reason why we should repent and we should teach and encourage others whom we love to repent is, as you see on your sheets, because God's word can be trusted. And here, I think this is going to blow your mind. This is brilliant stuff here. Have a look at verse three with me if you can. This is he um, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, I'm sure you can see here, look at the footnotes in your Bible. You'll see that Matthew here is quoting from Isaiah uh, chapter 40. Why don't we flick back to that, if you possibly can, in your Bibles. That's on page 723. We don't often do this, but I thought it might be helpful. Page 723, Isaiah chapter 40. 
As you get there, let me give you a bit of context if I can. Isaiah is speaking to God's people here, telling them that uh, rebellion, their rebellion against God, it will bring in God's justice. There's judgment coming. But also the chapter goes on to anticipate a time uh, where God will return to comfort his people. Hence, verse 1, look at it. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then you go on, and then there are three voices that happen, that occur within this chapter. And the first one is the one that is interest to us, because it was in interest of Matthew 2. Um, turn to uh, verse 3, just over the page, page 74. And let me read to you. A voice of one calling. In the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is going to come to the people in the desert, and the people are required to prepare. And it's likened to preparing the road, as you'll see there. So every obstacle, obstruction needs to be cleared away and the rough ground is to be made level. That's what he's saying in those just three verses. It's a flat road, it's a straight road. And God is speaking to his people via this messenger, Isaiah. And he's promising that he's going to come. And therefore, as a result, the main point is they've got to get ready. I remember when I was a, a teacher many years ago now, I worked at a school and uh, we had a visit from the Queen. Brilliant, she was opening up part of the school and it was very exciting and they send a team about a week before to make kind of preparations to your school. They kind of seal every manhole cover to say they've checked it for bombs and all this kind of stuff. They check everything, all the buildings, all the people, all the grounds. It's fairly laborious, but we had to get ready. We had to prepare. Prepare for her arrival. You see, if someone great comes to you, to visit you, you get ready, don't you? God is coming for his people, Isaiah is saying here. And it will be a time of rescue when he comes with all his glory. And Matthew is saying, make the connection here. The reason we've gone back, flip back if you want to, to to Matthew chapter 3 again. Matthew is saying of John the Baptist, that is the voice. That is the voice of Isaiah 40 verse 3. Therefore, get ready. Get ready. And just in case you didn't get the point, if you wonder whether God's word can be trusted, whether his promises are fulfilled, Matthew now points out all the clothes and the odd foods, uh, things that you know, John the Baptist eats and wears. Have you ever wondered why all those details are there in verse uh, 4 and 5? Again, why don't you just nip back? Just a couple of pages. Um, and now to Malachi chapter 4, the last verse, the last couple of verses of the Old Testament, page 962. Malachi there, again, is a prophet of God. He prophesies, this is 400 years before Christ comes and John the Baptist comes. He prophesies that before God comes to earth, he will send, it says, the prophet Elijah. And then you get to verse 6, look at it with me. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Before you see in verse 5, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So there's a picture of what that day looks like and what the person who brings that in looks like. 
It's Elijah. John the Baptist here is then a kind of parallel with that figure Elijah. So how can you tell it is Elijah? Well, how can you recognise Elijah? Well, 2 Kings 1, you don't have to turn there, is really helpful. Let me read you a couple of verses from there. It's where the king is asking these men, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he had a garment of hair and a leather belt round his waist. The king immediately knew what it was, who it was. The king said, that was Elijah, the Tishbite. See what Matthew is doing here. He's saying, this one, the one like Elijah that was promised, that's John the Baptist. He's the genuine voice from God. And therefore, get ready. His word can be trusted. It is all coming to fulfilment. So let me summarise very quickly. Why should we repent? Because God's word can be trusted. If, if just one of those things, and I know I flicked through them very, very quickly, if just one of those things that was promised came to fulfilment, it would be amazing. But so many things are aligning and coming to fruition in this one man, John the Baptist. And they all provide this loving warning. God is going to burst into history in all his glory. And the big point is, are you ready? Are you prepared? If we choose not to repent, if we choose to ignore God and not gratefully and joyfully submit our lives to him, it would be like you know, sticking your fingers in your ears and missing out on something so amazing. This is the most significant moment in all of history. God is coming. I don't know if you know, this story is well told. I've heard it a number of times. But in September 1972, a man named Shoshi Yokoi was found in the jungles of Guam. 26 years after VJ Day, the end of World War II in the Far East, he was still on guard with a loaded rifle, thinking that the war was not over. He'd been surviving on eating various unpleasant things on the forest floor, and uh, he returned to Japan a hero. But for 26 years, he had utterly ignored this great fact of history. Why repent? Because God's word, these promises, can be trusted. God's promises to us find their fulfillment in the coming of John the Baptist and later in the coming of Christ. Don't ignore him. Don't miss out. Turn around and receive him. Don't stick your fingers in your ears. You're missing out. Third good reason why we should repent and why we should teach and encourage those we love to repent because God understands us. Very quickly, verse 7 to 10. Simple point here is that I don't think we can fool God. We just can't fool him. We spend so much of our time, think about it, work with our relationships, our families, to try and make a good impression. But inside, we can be as broken as anyone else. Hurting, miserable. Yet we all try to portray this steely confidence. Now the Pharisees, look at them in verse uh, 7 of uh, Matthew chapter 3. You'll see them there it's externally. This is, they just don't get any better. These guys were kind of the, the, the religious aristocracy, if you like. 
And what happens is they come out to the desert where John the Baptist was. But the, it's extraordinary. The force of his words to them, John the Baptist's words to them, is absolutely frightening. Now you're kind of wondering, well, if John the Baptist speaks so plainly as J.C. Riles says it, um, if he speaks so plainly to you know, murderers, the kind of people who embezzle money, or to, to paedophiles, well, we'd be okay with that, wouldn't we? But to the religious elite of the day, for all their impressive display, John the Baptist is warning, he's saying, you need to turn to, you need to turn and repent, just as we do. Perhaps the Pharisees came in verse 7. I, I, we're not totally sure. They may have thought, hey, look at my impressive religious CV. Look, I'm going to add baptism to that too. And they're kind of going out for the, the spectacle. You know, they just want to go back and chat with the neighbours, have a tea and biscuits and just say, hey, look, I'm not sure if you've done I've done it. I've been out to the desert. I've been baptised. Have you not? It's a bit of one-upmanship. We're just not sure. Possibly something that they, they look on from a distance, looking down their noses. Hence why verse 9, look at that if you can. John the Baptist is saying... And do not think that you can say to yourselves, it kind of a picture looking down their noses here, uh, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, John the Baptist replies, that out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. See who they are and what they have done, John the Baptist is very plain. It's just not enough. They may have the most impressive religious CVs. They may think that what is going on in the desert is, is kind of below their kind of rank. But they can't fool God. They need to repent. Now this isn't easy to hear, is it? But we do need to hear it. There's probably a little bit of Pharisee in every single one of us. The liberal church, the tabloid media, the idle chit-chat in the coffee houses of southwest London, they are united in this. That is, they're very quick to point the finger. They're very quick to look down their noses upon people and say, oh, yeah, I think they ought to repent, but no, me, I'm, I'm okay. They never see need in themselves. And we may even do it in church. I don't know if you ever thought, and uh, we can do this subconsciously, but have you ever thought as you look at someone coming to church, say, oh, I'm glad they're here, they really need to hear this today. You ever thought that? Self-righteously kind of pointing the finger, looking down the nose. John the Baptist's diagnosis is pretty cutting, isn't it? Look at the verse 7, it's, it's shocking. You brood of vipers, that is you're dangerous to yourselves and you're dangerous to everybody else. Verse 10 is even more shocking. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit. That is the good fruit of repentance, of true repentance in verse 8. Look what's happened. You, you know what the imagery is talking about here. Will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's judgment. Repent because God's kingdom is near. Repent because God's work can be trusted. Repent because God understands us. He does. Better than we know ourselves. Fourthly and lastly, very quickly, because God has provided for us. These last two verses. Now, if you just say, if you look at everything that John the Baptist has said so far, uh, it would be pretty harsh, wouldn't it? If it led to nothing. 
If we didn't have these final two verses, in a sense it'd be going like going to the doctor and never hearing you're okay, but always, oh, you've got that thing wrong or that thing wrong or that thing. It'd be like going to, you know, kind of the appraisal at work and only getting critique and no kind of positive affirmation. You're rubbish at this, you're terrible at that, your timekeeping is and so on. It would be awful. Look at the message so far, though. Flee from from the wrath, uh, in verse 7. Produce fruit of repentance, verse 8. Don't rely on who you are, which is essentially what verse 9 and 10 uh, are saying. You see, without the provision that we get in these last two verses, this is a, this is a hard message to hear. And yes, I said it, it, it very much is challenge. But these last two verses sweep us right away over here to comfort They're an important tonic, I think, because we have in these two verses an ultimate provision from an eternally loving father, but they mustn't be isolated on their own. Because as we repent, as we've seen in this this little section, firstly, we need to be brought low. Liberalism and moralism just don't go far enough. We need to know our sin as God knows our sin. And then we can begin to see the necessity of heart change, of life change, of true repentance. But we repent not only because of the lowliness of who we are, but also brilliantly, joyfully, because of the amazingness of God. Look at his provision for you very quickly. Last two verses. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I would love to spend a long time on this. I've got a minute. The big point, though, is this. John the Baptist doesn't claim to have the power, but the kingdom power of God is coming in another As Ezekiel 36 promises, which is what is being referred to here. One is coming who has the power to forgive and to cleanse us. To make us right before God. Before the final judgment that he will bring about himself. So repent. Repent because God's kingdom power is near. That was our first point. And that is a day of judgment is coming and Christ is near by his spirit and through his word. Repent secondly because God's promises in his word can be trusted. He's faithful. He loves you. But one day he will judge, so be ready. Thirdly, repent because God understands you better than you know yourself. He knows your frailty. He knows everything that you cover up from every single person in this world. He knows your arrogance, yet you hide it well. And he knows your need for forgiveness. Repent. Repent because, fourthly, God has provided us with a cleansing, forgiving saviour. I hope you know him. His name is Jesus. Trust him. Love him. See, despite what someone like Stephen Fry says in his own personal frustration and anger, God is not mean-minded. He is not stupid. 
He is not responsible for the world full of injustice and pain. You are. We are. But God has in his love and his kindness provided a saviour, a healer, a sacrificial servant king. His name is Jesus. We'll learn about him much more next week. Repent. Turn to him with a lowliness of heart, but a wonderful smile beaming from your face with joy. Trust his provision and repent. Let's pray. Just a moment of quiet to maybe hear those words, respond to those words in prayer.